in about 1975, part of the beach that runs right up to the fence of the inner German border within sight of what was then a huge watchtower, uh, was turned into a nudist beach. Uh, whilst uh, nobody was allowed on the beach on the East German side, apart from uh, border police uh, with binoculars. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com Tim Phillips travelled the route of the Iron Curtain from deep inside the Arctic Circle to the meeting point in Armenia, Azerbaijan and Turkey. On his journey, he explored the surviving traces of both the Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall. The people he meets bear vivid witness to a time of change. There are some who now look on the Cold War with nostalgia and affection, but many more who still despise it, unable to forgive the hard and sometimes lost decades that their families, friends and nations had to endure. Strikingly, a large and growing proportion of these populations no longer has any personal memory of this defining 20th century conflict. They were still too young or not even born when the curtain and the wall came down. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a written review in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media. By telling your friends, you can really help us grow the number of listeners. And if you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are welcome too. Plus, you get that sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. So, back to today's episode. We welcome Tim to our Cold War Conversation. It was a combination of a project that I personally had always wanted to do um for a long long time and something that um eventually i thought would would make a good book especially at the moment that we're living through at the at the present time yeah why 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 did you decide on this particular sort of subject for your for your journey so i've spent a long time in my life researching Russia uh, and particularly contemporary Russian politics. And I've always been fascinated by the Cold War, both the reality of it and, and the fiction of it. Um, and uh, I decided that, uh, well, as I said, it had always been a personal interest of mine to go to places where there were vestiges of the Cold War, where important events had happened. Um, and then I guess I found myself thinking about some of the new divisions in the world. Um, that um, are coming up uh, increasingly at the moment. And the fact that some people, me included, feel that there are certain similarities with the Cold War past. And I kind of put the two ideas together uh, and I had some time off my normal job and I decided I was going to try and make the journey um, and uh, write a book about it. Uh, I guess the um, the thing that uh, the big decision I made early on was that uh, rather than just traveling on the route uh, that is very famous, um, so from the, the Baltic coast of Germany 
down to Trieste. Uh, Churchill said from Stettin to Trieste, but that was actually inaccurate even when he said it. Perhaps we can come back to that. Anyway, rather than just going from the top of Germany down to Italy, I decided I would try and do uh, a more genuine trip along the whole of the old East-West divide in Europe. So I started at the top of Norway in the Arctic Circle, where Norway and Russia touched each other, uh, and made my way all the way to the easternmost part of Turkey, where it meets Azerbaijan. You know, there, there were only two places where NATO countries directly bordered on the Soviet Union, which I think was Norway and Turkey, which are the two um, northernmost and southernmost points of your of your journey. That's exactly right. So that was kind of my organising principle. Um, and um, the, the most northerly place um, is the nearest uh, settlement is a place called Kirkenes in Norway. Um, there isn't really an equivalent place uh, just across the, the border in Russia, though the nearest city is Nikel, which is a, quite a large place. Um, so I started there and then um, wended my way down through Europe uh, mm -hmm. during last spring and summer and a little bit in the autumn as well. Um, uh, 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 but not all on foot, as several people have asked me, because I think I would still be walking. Um, so lots on foot. Uh, I did walk a thousand miles, slightly more than a thousand miles during the trip, but um, I covered the rest of the 15 or so thousand miles um, using other modes of transport. Wow. Wow. And Kirkenes, is it pronounced, did you say? Yes, um, Kirkenes. Uh, interestingly the people there seemed to turn the first k into a sort of uh, a sound a bit like a russian h so hirkenes many people seem to say but right well regular listeners will know that pronunciation is not my strong point um <laughs> but i do know that this this area was liberated by the soviet army at the end of world war 2 that's right and and actually uh, that had a very big bearing on how people in Kirkenes and in Finnmark province generally um, approached the Cold War uh, and indeed how they continue to approach uh, relationships with Russia today. Um, uh, so um won't be a surprise to your listeners that, that many, many people on both sides of the Iron Curtain felt that Russia was a dangerous, frightening, or Soviet Union, we should say more accurately, that the Soviet Union was a dangerous, frightening aggressor, an occupier in many parts of Eastern Europe. That's certainly how it seems to many local populations. Interestingly, the Norwegian population in the far northeast of Norway um, they have a healthy respect for the Soviet Union and for Russia, but also a lot of gratitude for the liberation from from the Nazis. Right. Well, that, that's interesting. I, I guess, you know, because it it is one of these areas of Europe which the Soviet Union occupied where they did actually with, withdraw from, whereas obviously with most of Eastern Europe, it wasn't until uh 1990s and 91 that they started withdrawing from 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 those areas do you think that's in some way because th th something that sort of makes these people have a slightly different viewpoint De definitely um uh yeah the russians came they liberated the place um and they left again um and um that uh, i guess um what to mix my scandy 
country metaphors, one could say that there is a certain amount of Stockholm syndrome in the sense that um, the people there are very aware that if the Russians wanted to, they could be over the border and occupying the very sparsely populated area before um, the NATO troops several hundred miles to the west and the south had mobilized themselves. So I think um, it's it's a bit like... Um, Perhaps it's a little bit like having a, a, a troublesome neighbor who other neighbors tell you can get violent and nasty, but they always smile and wave at you. So you make sure you always smile and wave nicely back. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever seen that series? I think it's on Netflix called Occupied. Yes, I watched the first series of that. I haven't seen the second. Um, yeah, quite quite a striking storyline. Um it it is, and I I've wondered whether you know what the sort of Norwegian view is is on that film that it's just good fiction because it's sort of it's shades of the Ukraine with the little green men turning up, or or sorry Crimea, um, but sort of set in Scandinavia. I I found it a really good series, and the second series is well worth watching too. I think there is more than a grain of truth in it. Um, when I say that uh, people in Finnmark, in Kirkenes, are kind of well disposed towards the Russians and feel that uh, Norway in general should tread carefully when it comes to Moscow and not unnecessarily make an enemy of it, that's not necessarily the view in Oslo. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think your your next stop was another country in Scandinavia that has an interesting relationship with the Soviet Union in Finland. Yes, yes, this was this was something. Um, there were many things in planning the trip that I knew about and had kind of you know as soon as I decided I would do it, I thought I've, I'm definitely going to go there. I'm definitely going to see that. You know, obviously things like Berlin, um, uh, but also. Um, the 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 um, Vienna, which used to be divided in the same way as Berlin, but there were other things that I really had no idea about, and I thought, well, I'm going to go to Finland, and I wonder what I'll see. I, I think you're probably referring to Porkola, the the part of Finland which is nowhere near the old Soviet border, but which nonetheless the Soviet Red Army occupied for um, ten years after for, after the Second World War. Finland's position is an interesting one um, because in World War II, it's initially seen as a victim of the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union attacked them in 1939. Um, Finland has to sign an armistice, loses territory to the Soviet Union, but then attacks the Soviet Union alongside the German army in 1941 gains quite a lot of territory in those early years, but then is eventually beaten and has even more stringent uh, peace terms imposed on it, of which Porkala was one of them. That's precisely correct, yes. Uh, uh, Finland, um, not to excuse any of the specific um, indefensible decisions that governments may have made. Finland is one of those places that um, un very unfortunately um, entered the war off the back of the Nazi-Soviet pact and therefore could never really put itself on the right side in the war. Uh, basically, you know, it, it, it saw the Soviet Union as, as an aggressor because it had kind of um, been carved up in the pact between Stalin and Hitler. And so then at a later point when it might have decided that it would rather be with the Allies, um, since the Allies um, also included the Soviet Union, that wasn't an option for it. Um, similar thing for, uh, I guess, um, non 
non-pro-communist um, forces in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. As I say, not to excuse specific bad decisions, but just to recognize that they found themselves between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, yeah. And they, they also lost the equivalent of uh, England losing Birmingham, didn't they? Uh, Finland's second city, Vaipuri, was yes. lost to um, the Soviet Union as well. That's right. And actually, um, Vipuri, Vipuri, or Vyborg, as the Russians um, uh, call it, um, is the pla- one of the places I went to in Russia in order to see um, uh, what the vestiges of, of Finnish culture are there and also kind of what happened to those during the Soviet period. It, it was a huge loss. Um, uh, it, it, it also was a very important place uh, for Sibelius and Karelia more generally. It was a very important place for uh, Finnish culture across the board. So it was like losing a heartland, both economically because it was the second city, but also then in terms of Finnish culture. And what's very interesting is um, uh, at the end of the war, when when they um, signed peace accords, um, uh Everybody who is Finnish um, in Weborg and Vipuri, they leave. And uh, instead, a new Russian population, Russian-speaking population, from largely from the Urals, um, but also from other parts of Russia, they're brought in. So with no connection to the place, no connection to its history, and, and they start to build a new story of um, Weborg. Uh, uh, so th- that's a really fascinating kind of element of this. And, and it's sort of, it's not formally a closed city, in Soviet times, not like um, some of the ones that are closed because they have, you know, nuclear um, n- nuclear uh, industry or something like that, or big military presence. But because of its proximity to the border, uh, it was effectively very difficult to visit. And um, Finnish people, for instance, could go on a day trip there from un- until the late seventies, but they could not spend a night in in Vyborg. Right. And were, were there many vestiges of uh, Finnish culture left there, like in the architecture? Yes. I mean, it had it had been a Swedish city at an earlier point, and there are some late medieval Swedish uh, and Finnish buildings, um, a, a wonderful castle that uh, anyone who's ever taken, not very many people have been to Weiborg, but perhaps some of your listeners have taken the train in their lives from Helsinki to St. Petersburg or Helsinki to Leningrad. Um, as you pass through Weiborg, you get a very uh, spectacular view of the castle, um, uh, the fortress, uh, which is really magnificent. Um, then there are quite a lot of um, lovely uh uh, what would you say, um, commercial buildings and banks that date from the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and they tend to have writing in uh, Finnish, English, French, Russian sort of inscribed on them because it was a big commercial port. Um, uh, and then rather marvelously, and I don't know if this is um, what you had in mind, I don't know if you were aware of this, there is the really splendid Alvar Alto Public Library. Um, Designed by Alvar Alto, one of the most important modernist architects in the world, the most important probably in Finland, um, in the 1920s, and then realized um, throughout to the, through to the mid-1930s, um, a splendid kind of white box with beautiful 
windows letting in lots of light and an amazing functionalist interior with skylights and um, beautiful uh, Karelian wood rails running around it. A a really magnificent building. So that was uh, left. Um, It only operated as a public library in peacetime for three or four years before the um, Winter War began. Um, And it was left um, after the war in a a quite dilapidated state um, and only repaired properly after Stalin's death. It actually had a very lucky escape because um, uh, although it it would not have looked out of place in some Soviet visions of the future circa 1922-23, by Stalin's time, as many of your listeners will know, it was neoclassicism that was all the rage. And we can think of those sort of Stalinist birthday cake style buildings um, in Moscow. And when they drew up plans to try and um, renovate it, in, in the late Stalinist era, so late 40s, early 50s, the plan was to give it columns and a portico and stick some stuff on it to make it look more uh, neoclassical, a bit more decent, which would have utterly ruined it. So very fortunately, that never actually took place. And it was repaired in quite a good way in, in the late 50s and reopened as a library in, in the 1960s. Um, I mean, Finland is an interesting case because there's this term coined Finland finlandization during the cold war where as part of their treaty as well i think they 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 are not able to join nato and they have to remain neutral um i lived in finland about 15 years ago when i was finishing my doctorate and i began to pick up then from conversations with friends that um they had a very cautious attitude towards the russians and they looked on the period of finlandization so the period from 1955 through to the end of the Soviet Union um, as a period when Finland had had to make some very difficult choices, some very difficult compromises. But they generally felt, whether these were people on the left or the right of politics now, they generally felt that really Finland had had no choice. And so actually, you know, governments that had made these difficult trade-offs not to criticize the Soviets, to buy things from the Soviet Union, um, even though it might not have been what they wanted, to censor um, publications in Finland sometimes because otherwise it would have displeased the Soviets. They looked on these decisions as being simply what was inevitable if you're a small country and you have beside you a potentially hostile, enormous country. Um, Going back to the origins of Finlandization, as I discovered on the trip, there was a moment in the middle 50s, Khrushchev established himself in power and... um, he is aware of the unsustainable uh, military cost of maintaining the hostile position of the Soviet forces across Europe, um, and particularly in many outposts where there was no longer any prospect that they were going to turn the local population communist or, or, or something like that. And in order to try to retrench, um, he he thinks of this policy whereby he will cut a deal with the local population, the local governments, that he will leave, the Russians will leave, so long as um, uh, the countries agree to be neutral and not to join NATO. And that's kind of the germ of, of uh, what is pejoratively known as Finlandization. It happens in 1955-56 through negotiations in, with with the Finnish government, it also happens at the same time with the Austrian government, 
and basically the same deal is cut there. Um, the Russians withdraw from uh, the, the Red Army withdraws from the uh, Soviet quarter of Vienna and the Soviet quarter of Austria, and in return, the Austrians agree never to join NATO. Um, people don't, for some reason, talk so pejoratively of of the fact that it happened in Austria, but it was broadly identical, and um, there was a kind of plan not uh, fully welcomed in all uh, uh, Soviet circles and certainly not welcomed in East Berlin, but there was a plan in the minds of some in Moscow to do exactly the same with Germany. That if the West, if the West agreed to reunify Germany, as had been done with Austria, um, uh, so long as Germany as a whole agreed to be neutral, um, the the Russians would have left, and effectively they would have left the East German communist regime to the mercy of um, events. But it never took place. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So moving further down the uh, the iron, well, not, not exactly the iron curtain, but you you move you get onto uh, Latvia, um, which is an interesting place. You know, a former Soviet state. Yes. Um, so uh, th- th- there is people don't write very much about the maritime Iron Curtain as as I think of it, um, but it was nonetheless a reality. And in fact, the you know the importance of navies and and submarines um, uh, to the um, to the Cold War on both sides, and also the the, the significance of the fortifications along the beaches along the coastline of of the Baltic republics uh, and elsewhere. Um, mean that it really is appropriate to think of the Iron Curtain going through the Baltic Sea. Yeah, I went to Latvia. Um, uh, I think um, I, I was particularly drawn to a place called Liepaja, um, which is on the the, the west coast of, of Latvia um, and which was a major um, Soviet naval port. Um, and um, I guess it's just a, another short illustration, Liepaja and, and its... Um, uh, suburb Karosta, um, uh, which which was where all of the military people lived and where the barracks were and uh, and the submarine base. Um, th- that was a proper closed city, and and this what really brought that home to me was um, in in the excellent um, prison museum there in what used to be a military prison. Um, they have maps that show um, Liepaja as it appeared on Soviet um, cartography which is basically as um, some marshland, uh, no settlement there at all, and specifically the bit with the big military harbour in it and the military city, uh, that is actually on the maps an extension of the Baltic Sea. So the land in, the land itself has been disappeared on the maps. Uh, that's the extent to which it was um, hidden from view. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I've seen old British Ordnance Survey maps which just have gaps in them for some Cold War military locations, but um, I've never heard of uh, a base disappearing into the sea like that. I know it, it, it when you um, they have it nicely set up in the museum so that you can just look at an ordinary map of of where you are, and you have to look several times to sort of work out where the outline is on the one map and, and where it isn't on the other and uh, that they've actually put it in as, as some sort of um, shallow waters rather than being a large city with um, forty to 50,000 people in it. Um, so yeah. really remarkable. And you, you also visit some of the islands in 
the Baltic as well, namely Gotland and Bornholm. Yes, I, I went to both. They are the most easterly parts of Sweden and Denmark, respectively, and um, they really are quite far east um, compared to those two countries. Gotland in particular was um, very implicated in, in the Cold War. Uh, Sweden, obviously, uh, not in NATO, but having to take uh, large steps to, to defend itself. Um, and um, it was felt... I believe from the 19th century onwards, so not just in in Cold War times, that um, Gotland, uh, there's such a concept as the Gotland Gambit. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but the Gotland Gambit is uh, that um, uh, whereby a power like Russia seizes Gotland. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Um, because it wouldn't necessarily be very difficult to seize. It's quite small um, and quite isolated uh, and holds it um, as ransom, effectively, um, for some other thing that it wants from the West. So basically, that's quite like, I believe, the um, plot of Occupied, the Norwegian serial that we talked about. Um, so basically, mm. um, uh, uh, Gotland would find itself invaded and the West would be told in return to uh, back off from some other part of the world or else Gotland wouldn't be released. Um in Soviet times, it was more likely, in Cold War times, it was more likely that that would be the first step of some kind of um, uh, attack uh, on the West. So there was quite a lot of... Uh, uh, the population of Gotland was about 50% bigger in, in, in Cold War times because of the military presence there, um, and quite a lot of steps were taken to try and keep track of what the Soviets were up to. Uh, from people I talked to when I was there, I, I'm not sure anyone had much hope that all of the military build-up would have achieved much in the way of keeping Gotland Swedish if the Soviets had wanted to take it. But um, the reality was instead that actually there was no direct attack on Gotland and and it became more of a place that um, when people got the chance to escape from the Soviet Union, um, uh, whether that was in crop sprayer planes or uh, purloined naval vessels, uh, Gotland often was the place they headed for because it was it was the nearest point from the Baltic coast. Right, right. And I've heard similar with Bornholm. I've seen various photos of various Polish MiGs landing mm -hmm. on Bor Bornholm to, to defect. But obviously Denmark was part of NATO during this period. Yes, so um, you can go. Um, a great day out um, is to go to the old NATO listening station on the east of Bornholm, so the bit of Bornholm that's closest to Poland, Soviet Union, um, Germany. Um, uh, and and it was you can see the technology that they used to listen to um, 
the signals traffic um, in the east. And in the same museum, they have one of the MIGs that the Polish pilots used to escape in. And so you can you can touch it, walk around it. Really marvellous. Because, again, this was an area that was occupied by the Soviet Union at the end of World War Two, and then they uh, handed it back, didn't they? That's right. They stayed for a year. Um, they didn't call it an occupation at the time. Um, the Danes have always been very careful not to call it an occupation because that was one of the conditions of the Soviets leaving. Um, there's a beautiful Soviet military cemetery there, and uh, the Soviets still come every year and lay wreaths until the recent problems with, between uh, the Old West and Russia, um, the, the Danes would also mount a military guard in, in respect for the fact that Bornholm was liberated by um, the Red Army. But I believe um, that they no longer are doing that at the moment because there is a freeze on all relations um, between all military cooperation between Denmark and Russia since the, um, uh, since the annexation of Crimea to Russia. Um, but um, it's it's a it's a military cemetery in a truly beautiful spot, looking over the Baltic Sea, um, and um, I believe that um, I believe that it was a reasonably friendly and amicable situation, uh, and also that it was pretty clear throughout that there wasn't really much intention on the part of the Soviets to try and hold on to Bornholm. They recognised they had only got hold of a very small part of a much bigger country. <laughs> Were you uh, not tempted to go to Kaliningrad on your way down? Very tempted. Um, uh, and uh, it may indeed be something I try and do before the book comes out. Um, I guess uh, there, there were two parts of the trip where I could have taken an absolutely exhaustive approach and I decided that I wouldn't simply because of the time available to me. Uh, and I run the risk, therefore, of being accused of kind of um, not doing justice to some of the fascinating stories. One of them was that Baltic coastline, where obviously I also did not, on this trip, visit Estonia and Lithuania, and you're right, Kaliningrad. Um, I didn't go to Poland too, which which had a Baltic coastline, though in terms of its land borders, it was well behind the Iron Curtain. Um, and then in the Balkans again, um, I didn't exhaustively go through all of the former Yugoslav republics that bordered um, Western capitalist mm -hmm. countries, uh, and I didn't visit Bulgaria. So, yeah, I, I think that's a legitimate mm -hmm. challenge, but um, so far I haven't made it to Kaliningrad. Mm. Well, well, Tim, you want to keep some back for a second book, surely? That's true. Um, <laughs> or, yeah, or perhaps I'll do the... Um, Caribbean Iron Curtain um, or something. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you've heard of Ernst Talman Island off Cuba. No, no. Which uh, the Cubans donated to East Germany during the Cold War. Um, a bust of Ernst Talman was erected on the island. But the interesting story is apparently when German reunification occurred, West Germany wasn't aware of this island. And so the story goes that technically it's the last surviving piece of East Germany. <laughs> <laughs> so has it, it, it remains with Cuba in a kind of um, cryogenic state awaiting the return of the GDR. Well, uh, yeah, in, in theory, I think, you know, Cuba's just taken possession of it and uh, it was always technically part of Cuba. So I think it was more a sort of publicity exercise, but somebody discovered that it had been sort of uh, 
not handed over, but you know, there, there'd been some ceremony about uh, East Germany having yeah. having some right to it. But I loved I loved that story, and I've seen a a photo of the Ernst Taumann bust, which got knocked over in a tropical storm and is now lying on the sand um, on, on one of the beaches there. I'll see if I can find a photo for you. Well, I mean, I, if um, if if Angela Merkel is looking for something to boost her popularity in the way that Putin achieved with um, Crimea, perhaps she could um, re-annex Ernst Talman Island and build a bridge to it from um, from Hamburg or something. That's just not her style, really. So Kaliningrad, you didn't get to, but you did get to some of the German Baltic coast in in terms of Rügen and and Lübeck. Yeah, in Lübeck, which was effectively was the uh, the um, easternmost city in West Germany on the um, on the on the inner German border. Mostly, the border runs up the River Trava. Um, so Travemünde is is the resort of Lübeck, and and so the east of the the east bank of the Trava is um, was in the GDR, and the west bank was Lübeck and was in West Germany. Um, but right at the coast, um, because of um, a quirk of administrative divisions in the um, in the nineteenth century, um, Schleswig-Holstein where Lübeck is, um, uh, stretches uh, across uh, at the very tip, so on the sandbank effectively, it's only about 300 metres wide, um, stretches across the Trava and runs for about a mile um, uh, along the coast. And so this very tiny um, sliver of land uh, on the other side was um, fenced in all directions um, and um, uh, and uh, was right right on the edge of the uh, west surrounded by East Germany and indeed by East German Navy and what's very nice about that is that in about 1975 um, this place which really just had a single road with um, West German holiday homes on it. Uh, West Germans went from Lübeck across a certain number and, and had holidays there. The the pl- part of the beach that runs right up to the old fence of the inner German border, within sight of what was then a huge watchtower, uh, was turned into a nudist beach. And so um, West German nudists were lying in the sand and running into the sea uh, whilst uh, nobody was allowed on the beach on the East German side apart from uh, border police uh, with binoculars. Um, so that's quite a nice, and indeed if people Google it, they will be able to see some nice um, pictures of, of what that rather incongruous setup looked like. Right. Well, we'll add those to the uh, show note. I always think the, the, bo- the end of the east german west german border into the baltics quite an interesting one because you know you've got this beach and then the the fence doesn't actually go right up to the sea does it there's there's sort of mm-hmm. barriers and there's various different obstacles to prevent east germans sort of getting that far down the beach from what i remember that's right yes and it would all have been within the restricted zone and the yeah the high fencing i believe um these things changed at different points of course as you know but i believe that on the actual sand it was just a chain link fence and maybe two chain link fences so one for the west german side and one for the east german so i think you're right that it wasn't it wasn't the kind of uh, razor wire sort of um dense dense mesh that that we think of elsewhere along the border yeah yeah 
So from uh, the Baltic, you go to Marienbourne. Is that your next stop? Yes, I drove down through and stopped at a few places. I mean, one of the one of the things that strikes you and uh, as you go is, you know, different countries have invested different amounts of money in memorialising and um, thinking about the heritage of the Iron Curtain. And and there's no question that Germany has the densest network of little museums, plaques, um, Gedenkstätte, the memorial sites of which Marienborn is, is one of the biggest, um, the, the place, the major motorway checkpoint um, f- on the road that was, that linked West Germany with West Berlin. Um but yeah, so I motored down, stopping at various places and getting out of the car and looking and, and being quite amazed at how in the space of uh, 30 years, uh, the, the road network um, has reintegrated and made the border seem like it didn't exist. The number of times you pass the signs saying that this is where the, the, the inner German border used to run is really quite striking. But I ended up um, having a great tour um from someone uh, who who was sort of volunteering on a gap year and had learned all about um, uh, the, um, the the checkpoint and how it operated. I had a great tour from him uh, one morning, um, and really fascinating. And fascinating as well to meet someone in their late teens who had kind of uh, immersed themselves in the history of the Cold War. Because one of the things I spotted more generally, and that lots of people working in the museum. Uh, industry told me about is you know uh, younger people have no personal recollection of the cold war obviously and they don't feel it to be a highly relevant defining feature of why their life is is as it is and that's true both in the old east and the old west so um that, that was an interesting bucking of the trend to spend a morning with with a younger person who has thought about all the different ways in which um the cold war is connected to the present and that's one of the things we're hoping to do with the podcast is to is to bring you know some of these first hand accounts to people who've perhaps not heard them and to to you know generate a a, a feeling of realism there about it in in terms of hearing it directly from that person's voice rather than reading it from a history book or or even watching a video because I think you listen more when somebody's speaking um whereas visuals can distract from the their intonation and the way that they're you know delivering their eyewitness account yeah that's really interesting i i can i I can understand what you're saying there and i I think as well from having taken lots of interviews as i was traveling it's very hard to put into words other than by listening to a first-hand account the, the combination of life was normal and yet life was really abnormal that that is the reality of the of, of the cold war which which took so long and 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 never resulted or seldom resulted in in europe anyway in actual conflict and yet it was transformative and defined everything and and uh, and overlaid everything um so i think it's only by hearing people's stories that you realize well life was normal and we got on with things day to day and there were pop concerts in the west and there were pop concerts in the east and people got married and divorced but at the same time this ideology and the threats and the strange compromises associated with it they, they were really very very significant for people yeah 
yeah you're you're absolutely right and the border area itself um is is quite a nature reserve isn't it in a lot of places in in terms of it was um you know it it was left on its own after after the uh, the wall came down yes yeah, so i believe it is the case i certainly was told this but i haven't checked it myself i believe it is the case that the last um law passed by the east german parliament which was uh, the rubber stamp parliament um, of all rubber stamp parliaments for most of its existence but the last law that it passed was to turn the uh, immediate restricted zone around the inner german border into a protected nature reserve um, and then it went out of existence um, uh, so that was after the um, sed had ceased to be the only party so it was after the only free elections in, in east germany's history um, but i believe that was their last um a legacy um, to history. Um, and since then, the European Union has become involved and has tried to turn all of the Iron Curtain corridor running right down from Norway through to mm, Greece, I think, um, into the European Green Belt, one of the, one of the European um, protected nature areas. Right, right. But in, in Berlin, less so because there's valuable real estate at play there, isn't there? In the centre of Berlin, it, it's interesting the it, because we think of the wall as iconically running through the centre of the city, which it did. It's easy to forget about the other bit of the wall that ran round the back of West Berlin in order to stop people going to Potsdam, which was in the east. So I think when you go round kind of uh, the extensive parts of where the wall was. Um, on the outskirts of West Berlin, there are a lot more areas that are nature reserved. But but certainly, what you're saying with regard to places like Potsdam Platz, Potsdamer Platz, and, and things, it's it's really truly remarkable to see how the scrubland has been transformed into a sort of uh, neo modern um, high rise glass confection that that is very very densely packed. Yeah, I mean, I I went to Berlin in. 1989 before the wall came down and Potsdamer Platz was this just vast area of emptiness with the wall there um and when I go there now I I have difficulty orientating myself there because it's just so completely different but I I there's a have you ever seen the film Wings of Desire by Vim Vendors no I haven't um it's a sort of art house movie um but it's a great depiction of 1980s uh berlin and there's one scene that takes place uh in potsdamer platz uh-huh. which is a really good representation of what it was at the time which is basically just derelict and waste ground on the western side and obviously um a big area of no man's land on the on the uh eastern side um but uh yeah i've made a note of it and i'm going to watch it yeah um, no it's 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 one of my favorite films and i think some of my listeners favorite uh, films when i've commented on it before so uh well worth a watch so any, anything else that you found in berlin uh well in in berlin i did go on on the trip and i have taken other um journeys there as well and and i think um, that's one of the places I visited actually since I did the main trip because I went back on the uh, 9th of November last year for the 30th 
anniversary um, commemorations of, of the wall coming down. And I think it was just another opportunity to see the extent to which the city has been transformed. And, and you know, coming from London, uh, where gentrification feels sort of uh, like it, it has touched so many parts of the city and in such an intense way that makes it uh, beyond the reach in many places of, of ordinary people. It can be hard to see that with the naked eye in Berlin to the same extent, but that is a huge concern for people there that kind of, um, you know, everywhere in the center is sort of being transformed into a global um, capitalist um, uh, pearl, I guess, that is, uh, you know, has a magnetic draw to mix my metaphors for people from all over the world. And I certainly sensed that even as, even as it was very, um, moving to to be present at some of the commemorations and you know, one of the great things about the way I, I mentioned already the quality and quantity of museums looking at the cold war across germany one of the great things about their approach to commemorating an event is that you can guarantee that there will be large amounts of text and photographs on boards all over the place telling you about what happened in particular places i think one of the things that i have become increasingly interested in is the way in which during the 1980s the church in East Germany um, played a huge role in facilitating the wider dissident movement, the movement against the um, the, the, the the repressive state, and uh, that the church had won through partly through the Helsinki Accords. The church had won some key freedoms. They weren't easy to maintain, but it had some freedoms with regard to operating its own printing presses, um, freedom of assembly, and and they made those freedoms available to groups, punk groups, computer game groups, uh, environmental groups, um, uh, to meet there, um, even if they didn't agree with them, and 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 that that's something that I was that I was very interested in. Yes, I think that's a very interesting part of uh, East German history. We did do an episode uh, a little while back about the Stasi's infiltration of the East German church because they absolutely mm-hmm. recognised there was a danger there, and that, that's an interesting story in itself. I think one one of the areas that I was very envious that you visited amongst loads of the others was uh, – <laughs> And I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Is Mod Modlar Reut? Modlar Reut, which is where the village has preserved all the uh, border fortifications. Yeah, it's it's such a crazy place. I mean, really a crazy place. Um, uh, I I might get this wrong, but it's yes, Modlar is is half in. Bavaria and half in Lower Saxony. I think that's correct, but um, uh, no doubt someone will correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, and um, it was really on the map um, in in Cold War times. George Bush went there. Other people went there to get onto step ladders and peer across the wall that ran right through the village green, tiny, tiny village, um, into the east. And of course, in the east, you weren't allowed to get on a step ladder and do the same in return. Um, and um, it is just, uh, it it's a marvelous, chilling place to see how the fortifications uh, grew and grew. And and it was called Little Berlin because they decided over time that rather than just having the typical mesh fence, which they had, 
in most other places on the inner German border, because there were people on both sides, they needed to have a Berlin-style wall. And this wall was effectively separating, you know, 70 people on one side from probably 35 people on the other. Um, And um, it's really, it's chilling because it makes you realize that um, it was it was something about keeping humans apart and not even allowing people to see the West that was um, at the heart of um, this policy of, um, of, of fortification. Um, clearly, there was an economic impulse to it in terms of closing the border as, as fiercely as they did. But the, the choice of this solution in such a tiny village could only have been about obliterating the site of the West. There was no other thing that was achieved through it. So it, it really is a most remarkable place. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely on my list of places to go to um, next time. I'm in Germany. So moving further south, you also uh, look at the border in the Czech Republic as well. Yeah, I went to I spent um, some time traveling through the Czech Republic and Slovakia, um, what would have been Czechoslovakia uh, at the time. And, um, you know, I think um, in the north, in, in what was Bohemia or the Sudetenland, um, once again, you find yourself as so often in in the Cold War when you're when you're looking at the people involved. You find yourself drawn back into the pre Second World War period, the the choices and decisions and mistakes that were made then. And and you know, um, one you, I went to a place called Heb. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's written C H E B. Um, a lovely town um, with beautiful church in it, and 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 you know everything is written everywhere in German because it was a German town for for a very long time, but everyone was driven out as part of the Benesch decrees after the Second World War, and it was very interesting to spend some time there with German tourists who are coming back now who have uh, are the descendants of people who lived there, um, and that um, that was one of several places where I realised. Uh, the extent to which the Iron Curtain was a membrane that refugees had crossed over in large numbers, and especially in the early decade, the first decade of the Cold War, that refugee experience in in very large numbers, not just defectors, one or two who kind of managed to slip through in dead of night, but really large numbers of people coursing in in various directions across Europe. Um, So that, that really came home to me. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, did you sense any sort of antagonism between, you know, the the Czechs who are now living in that former German area of the Sudetenland and these tourists coming to look at their, uh, well, what they're either their former homes or their relatives' former homes? No, I didn't. I, I I would be lying if I said I had spent long enough there to to have a good confidence that I would have but um I didn't for instance further north in Latvia I did I did feel real tensions between the um resident Latvian speaking population and the resident Russian speaking population that's quite well documented of course more generally but but one doesn't have to be there very long to pick that up uh I I didn't sense the same it 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 seemed to me to be a sort of mutually beneficial commercial on the one hand nostalgic and 
historic on the other hand transaction um and and what i also heard from local people is that you know the the fact that schengen has opened the border and made it disappear completely um it actually creates a lot of opportunities for for instance czech people to come and work in better bed jobs in bavaria and for bavarian people to um buy cheap petrol um cheap um opticians appointments and so on and so forth so so on a practical day-to-day level i think there's quite a lot of um low level cultural exchange and economic exchange on both sides of that border that that seems to be happening quite naturally that's not to say that things couldn't couldn't you know uh go bad or there aren't tensions beneath the surface but it did seem to me to be fundamentally working well yeah yeah it's interesting because there's quite a lot of areas around Europe that have those echoes of past times where the borders have moved quite significantly. Um, you know, areas like East Prussia, which is now part of Poland and part of Russia now, and yeah. you know, Silesia and Pomerania, which are now, which are now parts of Poland, and obviously Sudetenland, which was never a proper part of Germany apart from during the Nazi era when they. Um, you know, annexed it and then took over Czechoslovakia. Um, but no, in, interesting, interesting to hear that. Just on that subject, you just remind me. There's a uh, you may have heard of a German uh, novelist. He he died a few years ago called Walter Kempowski, and um, his books are, have more recently been translated into English. So they were written maybe ten, twenty years ago, but they've only been published recently. Um, and one of his books, and the name escapes me now, so very unhelpful. But one of his books is about um, a a West a group of West Germans going on holiday to the formerly German parts of Poland during the Cold War. So there were even package holidays uh, tours arranged to allow former refugees from silesia pomerania to go back and see their homeland in the 1980s but what's interesting about the book is that quite a lot of it is about the hostility that each side feels towards the other and and the difficulties and name calling and casting up of difficult historical moments so so i was very interested to discover that that kind of um tourism had been possible even even during the cold war yeah, it's interesting. I've I've heard of sort of Warsaw Pact exercises where there was no love lost between the East German army and the Polish army, or they were very competitive, uh-huh. um, obviously because of uh, past uh, history. Um, so we've talked to – well, you mentioned Vienna uh, earlier. Um, what sort of Cold War remnants did you find in Vienna? Well – the best the best ones are the ones that you you just stumble upon and um uh, there are two places in the center of vienna where there is russian graffiti from 1945 just on the walls in the street wow uh, and it, it may i know um so um i shan't say exactly where they are but they are literally right in the heart of the tourist district and if any of your listeners um are there um or go there then do hunt for the two pieces of of soviet graffiti they 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 were official graffiti so basically um when uh the soviets uh occupied vienna when they liberated vienna uh uh um from from the Nazis, they um, divided the center of the city into uh, quarters. 
uh, I, I, uh, I believe I want to say 24, but it might be 28. Um, and, um, systematically they moved through each quarter looking for known Nazi suspect people that they wanted to arrest or, or indeed to shoot. Um, and they went through every house, every staircase, every alleyway looking. And when they had completed the searches in one particular, uh, quarter, uh, the person in charge would stencil on the wall, first quarter checked, second quarter checked. Um, and uh, two of those survive right in the center of Vienna, um, just above head height. Um, and um, that was quite a joy to find those. There's a, there's a little bit about them on the internet that I discovered subsequently because I was just wondering, are they genuine and what do they mean? It's quite a strange phrase, second quarter checked, um, but but really not very much. So so that's definitely something to look out for. So did you just stumble across these or did somebody give yes, you a genuinely. pointer? Wow. No. I know. So wow. lots of things were sort of um, uh, uh, things I'd set out to go and see because I'd sort of been jamming, mm. jamming up on things. But those were those were um, those were genuine um, yeah. finds. Because another one of my favourite films is The Third Man. Did you go on the Third Man tour? I didn't make it on the Third Man tour because um, because of just the days that I was in. Uh, I was on it there off season, and I think they were only running the tour on Saturdays, um, and um, uh, and so I couldn't. Um, uh, I could. I wasn't able to go. So you're you're then into Budapest and Shopron, um, and did you visit the location of the Pan European picnic? I did indeed. I did indeed. Um, I, I, I went to Shopron and cycled out to the location of the pan European picnic where, um, uh, a you know, very touching event, um, obviously, um, uh, but uh, amusingly, that's one place where um, there are about five different um, archaeological layers of uh, information for tourists, sort of some that was put up very quickly afterwards, some from the 90s, some from the early 2000s, some from the European Union, some from the local area. So it, it's a very um, storied place, and, and yet it's really, really in the middle of nowhere. So you sort of suddenly come upon this field and there's layer after layer of information about the pan-European picnic that took place there. And then at the end of the field, there is still the Austrian-Hungarian border, um, which is one of the borders that since 2015 has been, since the refugee crisis in Europe in 2015, has been manned again. So even though it is in Schengen, and effectively, therefore, doesn't exist. It, it, nonetheless, there are Austrian border guards there all the time, ready to check cars and buses. And then you you travel down to uh, Tirana and Alba and the rest of Albania to the near the island of Corfu. That's right. So I yeah, I, I spent some time in Tirana. Um, Spent a lot of time underground in Tirana, of course, Albania famous for its many bunkers. Um, uh, and I, I spent quite a lot of time underground uh, looking at um, bunkers furnished with um, Chinese um, equipment uh, to create an oxygen supply and keep things running from the era when Enver Hodja was um, uh, friendly with the Chinese, but not with any of the European communist powers. Um, and then I made my way by bus on a really spectacular uh, route through the mountains to Sarande, um, uh, which is the uh, 
little port, now a nice holiday resort, um, that is a mile or so from Corfu. Um, and uh, so that's that uh, uh, another slightly unexpected place, perhaps not for your listeners, many of whom are very knowledgeable, but certainly for lots of my friends and acquaintances, quite uh, surprising to discover that the Iron Curtain runs down that very narrow channel between um, Albania and Corfu. But but um, the, the site of a very significant early Cold War um, altercation when two British naval ships uh, were just dis- were, were basically destroyed by um, Albanian mines with the loss of forty four British soldiers, British sailors. Sorry. Um, yeah, that's right. It's a relatively unknown um, incident in the in the Cold War, but um, uh, we didn't do too well with Albania because Philby, I think, betrayed various operations to try and infiltrate people into Albania as well during the early Cold War. That's right, and and actually that that um, that activity. Uh, whether whether specifically the operations Philby was involved in or or other operations, that was the Albanian defence for blowing up the British uh, naval ships. So they said, you know, there had been hostile activity by the British, and they were just taking defensive action. Yeah, the, the British said that the British said that it was the open sea, um, and so it was um, it, it was a war crime to mine the open sea and not allow the, the, the a ship to keep the Corfu Channel open. It was actually the very first case to be taken um, at the Hague. Uh, the 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 um, the criminal court in the uh, that was set up after the. Um, second world war right um, and um uh, the conclusion was in britain's favor but it would seem from what i've read that uh historical opinion would say that britain had been very lucky because it withheld a lot of evidence um on the grounds <laughs> of national security that that would have um played to the albanian case right right um yeah you might be interested i did an episode a few weeks back which was somebody who visited albania in 1989 for a holiday um, uh-huh. And he, he gives quite a good description of what Tirana was like. Um, this was post Hodja, but before the fall of the um, the communist regime there. But it, it, you might find that interesting for for a listen because he also travels travels down to the Albanian coast and he can see Corfu across the uh, the water as well. Um, so oh, that's great. did he have to shave a beard off? Uh, no, he didn't mention that. That that was a, a detail he didn't mention. So I presume he was clean shaven. Uh, when you he weren't arrived. allowed to have a beard, um, and they had hairdressers at the airport um, uh, who would. Um, I mean, I guess they didn't forcibly shave you, but but you weren't allowed in unless you visited those hairdressers if you had um, right non compliant non compliant facial hair. Wow. Okay. A little uh, <laughs> gem of Cold War information we didn't know there. Um, yeah. So uh, you you cross over to Corfu, and then it's North Macedonia. Yeah. yeah so I went to Corfu to um, understand a bit. Well, partly to visit the British cemetery there, where the the victims of the Corfu Channel incident are buried, and um, uh, to talk to a few people. Um, and then I went by bus across Greece to Thessalonica and from there up to North Macedonia, um, which had only recently changed its name when I was visiting. Um, and um, actually, while I was there, I, I did under- try and understand what the border had been like in um, 
Cold War times, but I also uh, visited um, uh, the border right up against the border today where sort of new fences have been erected since 2015, um, not dissimilar to the very dense mesh that we would associate with the inner German border, all to prevent or try to prevent the, um, the, the, the movement of refugees from Greece up through into uh, parts of the European Union further north. And I spent a day at a refugee camp um, just inside North Macedonia um, trying to understand the story of, of, of 2015 and what had happened since. Um, very interesting, uh, if you think of the context of what we assume about the Cold War, that principally people were trying to get out of the East into the West. Uh, certainly not so true with regard to Yugoslavia as it would have been with regard to other countries. But nonetheless, we think of that movement in general. Um, and then you fast forward to 2015 and you have the um, Macedonian then, the now the North Macedonian government erecting a fence to keep people in Greece and prevent them from coming into Macedonia. So just a very yeah. interesting reversal. Yes, yes, abs abs absolutely. So then you're you're into uh Turkey and towards the end of your your travels. That's right. I went to Istanbul partly because it's it's hard to move um through Turkey from west to east without hitting Istanbul, partly because and I'm not sure yet whether I'll focus on this in the in the book, but the Bosphorus itself was a flashpoint in the Cold War. Um and there was a concerted effort by the Soviet government to try to uh internationalize the Bosphorus and take it away from Turkish control at the end of the Second World War. Um because obviously it is the only way in and out of the Black Sea and therefore um it gives Turkey a lot of theoretical control over how Soviet um, navy ships and 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 trade vessels move um, to and from those Soviet, those southern ports. So I may look at that or I may not in the book, but um, jolly nice to spend a few days in Istanbul. And then I moved much further to the east, back towards the Soviet border, um, to to visit Kars, the um, city closest to Georgia and Armenia. Um, uh, and then um, to go to uh, Nikhichevan province, um, the, the the bit of Azerbaijan that is not connected to the rest of Azerbaijan, and and that's where I finished. I should say that um, uh, I um, I've spent quite a lot of time in my life in Georgia and Armenia. I lived in Georgia for a year, um, and um, because of time pressure and, and and one thing and another, I decided to postpone traveling to Georgia and Armenia until. Um, uh, April 2020 and, and to go back and look at them as part of the trip. So I should be there at the moment that I'm speaking to you, but instead I'm, I'm speaking to you from London um, uh, and we'll have to go again. Um, we'll look forward to uh, hearing how, how you get on there. Um, now you, I think we said at the, at the start, you're turning your trip into a book. How is that going? Well, it's going really well um, in that I'm I'm loving writing about it. Uh, at, at the moment of speaking to you, um, uh, we're both very restricted in our movements. Um, 
And so there's an added pleasure to remembering when I was uh, considerably more mobile and going to places that um, very few people get to go to um, and traveling to new cities or countries every few days. Um, because at the moment, I tend to travel to Tesco's every few days. Um, and that's about it. So, so there's something really nice about writing about it and remembering it at the moment. Um, uh, I have another job. So this writing is, is, um, it's much more than a hobby, but it's, it's only part of my life. So, uh, I guess I, I make slower progress than I would like, but at the moment I'm, I'm planning to have the manuscript finished sometime in the first half of 2021. And, and hopefully the book will, the, the book is under contract to Granta and hopefully um, they will, um, they will turn it around and get it out um, later that year. Right. And w- will the book contain photos as well? Yes, I took, I took a, 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 an impressive amount of photos um, so much so that my laptop can't really hold anymore. Um, and um, one of the pleasures of writing each chapter, especially if I hit a bit of writer's block is going into my trove of photos and trying to select the, the most arresting images. Um, at the minute, I think they'll probably be in, in black and white, but um, if people are interested in, in seeing some of the images, I have a, um, an Instagram account called Curtain and Wall. So all one word, Curtain and Wall. Um, and and I've, I've already posted quite a few there um, uh, images from the trip, which will give people a flavour of some of the places we've talked about, but also some of the other ones we haven't. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters, help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.